Okay, so Matthew 1, verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. King David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Amon. Amon, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abihud. Abihud, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Achim. Achim, Achim, the father of Elihud. Elihud, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Mathan. Mathan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus, there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he'd considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you're to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as, as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Well, good morning. Happy New Year and all that. It's good to see you. If it's your first time here, welcome. Um, it's lovely to see you. Uh, and we're starting a new series, a new journey. It's a new year. I don't know if you've noticed. It feels kind of strange. Six days in, it's our first Sunday. But I want to share with you a tradition that was begun this year. We uh, watched one of the new Star Wars films. You know, the ones that aren't as good as the old ones? We, we watched one of those, and it wasn't bad. Um, every one of the Star Wars films begin in the same way. You know, the uh, soundtrack is outstanding. John Williams, we heard it performed at the Barbican uh, last Sunday afternoon. It was wonderful. 
There's also the same backdrop every single time. There's the same font, and there's that huge amount of yellow text that kind of comes forth from the bottom of the, uh, the screen. It's just a race to try and get all the words in, because you know that if you read one wrong, you've got to go back, especially if it's a name. There are these nine films that have been produced at great expense, high quality, superbly enjoyable. They always start in the same way. Without that yellow wordage, you'd be lost because if you jump in at number six or seven without numbers one through five, then you don't know where you're coming from. It's important to get the context. It's also important to get the context when it comes to Matthew's gospel. That's why verses one to 17 are not to be skipped over. Shame on you if you, like me, have skipped over them in the past. Please don't do that ever again because there's great nuggets of gold in these 17 verses and a list of names that seems skip-overable. These uh, verses function to uh, not just introduce the Christmas passage that begins in verse 18. You know the one? This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. That's okay. We're on narrative. We're on descriptive words. We're not just a list anymore. These verses don't just function as filler. They function a little bit like bridesmaids. You know, if you've ever been a bridesmaid, I never have, there's a surprise. But uh, if you've got loads of bridesmaids, more than two, it's just, uh, come on, let's get to the one we're all waiting to see. Everyone's waiting to see the bride, especially the groom. These verses, verse 1 to 17, function like the bridesmaids. They introduce the main event, and he appears in title in verse 17, and the story in proper begins in verse 18. But, but Matthew, he wants to give us the context. He wants to give us the background. So verses 1 to 17, it's like bridesmaids before the bride. It's like a fanfare, the trumpeters, trumpeting, celebrating the arrival of Her Majesty or of a royal wedding. That's verses 1 to 17. It's giving us the background. It's giving us the context. Because Matthew says verse 18 might be where you can pick up the story, now the birth of Jesus Christ happened this way. But verses 1 to 17 are not filler. It's not a waste of time. It's like trumpeters heralding the king's arrival. And that's why it's so important to hear the king's arrival and to see where Matthew's story fits into the great story, into the whole story of God's story and God's dealing with the world. In this genealogy, there is gold. I want to show you three nuggets. God takes his time breaking into history. But he does that, point number two when we get there, to give us spiritual rest. And in so doing, he destroys all the distinctions and categories that the world holds so dear. That's what we can learn from this genealogy. It's not just filler, it's here for a reason. Let's look at the first one. God takes his time breaking into history. Look at verse one. It does not say once upon a time it's not a made-up story. It's a story in history. It doesn't say in a galaxy long, long ago. It doesn't say that either because it's true. Matthew wants to ground the story of Jesus in the history of God's people that he's got in mind, the Israelites. And he says, these are the generations, verse 1, of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the great king of the Old Testament, the son of Abraham, one of the great patriarchs of the Old Testament. And right away, Matthew is reminding us of something as he's writing in about AD 65 with Jewish people in his mind's eye who would know their Old Testament and he immediately makes these two connections to King David and to Father Abraham. 
And they would be a kind of, their Google Drive and their memory banks would be whirring to say, oh yes, David, 2 Samuel 7. God made a promise that an heir of David would always sit on David's throne on into the future. Oh yeah, Genesis 15, when God spoke to Abraham, Father Abraham, you have so many descendants, there'll be more than the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. You're going to have so many children, and from you will come kings, and kings will sit on the throne of David. But by the time we get to verse 18, and we're introduced to Mary, 2,000 years have been concertinated, have been collapsed into this genealogy. And it looks like God has forgotten his promises. In Luke chapter 1, verse 55, we looked at it just before Christmas. Mary sings this wonderful song, the first Christmas carol. And at the end of it, Luke 1, 55, she says, He, God, remembered his promise to our father Abraham, even as he said. All these connections are happening. But the reality is it's been 2,000 years since the promise to Abraham. It's been 400 years of silence that's uh, represented by this one sheet of paper of the Bible that I think you should rip out because it's unhelpful. 400 years of silence before the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New. And it looks like God has forgotten his people. 2,000 years, 400 years. And yet, Matthew says with the first two words of sentence one, this is a new beginning. This is a new beginning. The actual words are the book of Genesis, Biblos Genesis. And again, if you're a Jewish person, you're going back to Genesis in your mind's eye. And you're thinking, those were the words used in Genesis. And now Matthew is saying there's a new Genesis, there's a new beginning. And it's about God's dealing with his people. No surprises here. As a throwaway comment, this genealogy that we want to skip over and get to the good stuff, it teaches us a profound lesson that God takes his time breaking into history. God takes his time, 2,000 years. He could have done it just like that, with a click of his fingers, but he chose not to. He chose to do it through the lives of ordinary, broken, sinful people like you and me. Some of these names you've heard of, some of them you haven't. But look at uh, sentence number two. Isaac, the father of Jacob, and then it says Jacob, the father of Judah. We looked at this last term. Do you remember the story of Jacob? the wheeler dealer, the Arthur Daly of the Old Testament, who tricked his father, who dressed himself up in animal skin and tripped his blind dad in his old age. He's crafty. And he did something so wrong that he had to run for his life. He had to run away from Esau. He was after him. He fractured his family, ripped it apart. But when he was on the run, running for his life, he met Rachel. And Rachel, through Rachel, through that union, came the Messiah. As a throwaway comment, the genealogy shows God takes his time breaking into history, and he does it in the lives of broken people like you and me, sinful people, rebellious people like you and me. Our sin always has big consequences. But even through our sin and rebellion, look at the book of Ruth. God is sovereign over all, and he takes time breaking into history. And at the start of a new year, we don't know what it will bring. We can look back on God's faithfulness in the past, even through tears, but we don't know what the new, one, new year will bring. Don't be tempted to measure God's dealings in your time frame. God has his own agenda. God has his own purposes to make you more like his son. But don't constrict God 
to our small timescales of 140 characters or our New Year planner with hardly anything in it or a week that seems like a month. God works on his own timescale. Sometimes we think it's far too slow for our agenda. We want it quicker. But God will not be rushed. And God's purposes are never a plan B. Think about that from sentence two. Isaac, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Judah, and all the ruin and brokenness and rebellion in that one sentence. But through that rebellion and through that sin, God was still at work. The Messiah still came. Rachel was not plan B. The Messiah, Jesus, was not plan B. And that's just a throwaway lesson that we can learn from sentence number two. God will not be rushed. God takes time breaking into history, 2,000 years. But verse 18 says, this is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. But why? Why does Jesus, who takes uh, such a long time coming, and God is in charge of all history, why does he take so long? What's the point? What's the purpose? Point number two. God takes a long time breaking into history. Why? To give us rest. To give us rest. When Matthew was first written, AD 65, to Jewish people, we can tell that because of the the emphasis on the Old Testament in chapters 1 to 4 especially. A big emphasis on the word fulfillment that you can see. Prophecy that's quoted, chapters 1 to 4. A Jewish person would know that this is very stylized, a very truncated genealogy. It's actually unhelpful. I thought about getting it read from the authorized version. Um, in a ye olde style of speech, because the actual word in verses 2 through to verse 17 is not father of, is actually begat. But I thought I'd give you a break on the first Sunday of the new year. Um, but the word is begat. Begat means uh, he's the ancestor of, rather than he fathered. Sometimes that's true, sometimes it's not. Look at verse 17, and you've got these 14s. And you're wondering, why are they there? What's the point of all the 14s? Because I thought three 14s were 42 anyway. But the point is this. Matthew is hard at work to say with this stylized, edited, truncated, collapsed, intentionally designed, but truthful, begatting, so-and-so was the ancestor of so-and-so. They weren't his dad, but so-and-so was the ancestor of three generations back. He's saying, verse 17, thus there are 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Christ. It's a stylized history of the Old Testament to make a point. So what's the point? And what's with all these 14s? This is the point. I'll put it to you that Matthew does not want us to count in 14s. He wants us to count in sevens. He wants us to count in sevens. Stick with me. Look at this next slide. From Abraham to David, well, that's seven and a seven. That's 14, right? And then from David to the exile, that's another seven and a seven, another 14. So up to four 17s. An exile to Christ, that's another seven and another seven. So up to six sevens. So who's the seventh? Jesus. This is a stylized, a collapsed, telescopic version of the Old Testament. And so we've got to say, why? What is Matthew up to? What's the point he's trying to make? Because we're not Jewish readers, we miss it. We don't know who these people are. We don't know the stories unless we read the Old Testament a lot. We certainly don't get the point of the number 14, and we certainly don't get the significance of the number 7. Let me show it to you. 7 is a big deal in the Bible. 
Think of where it occurs. The first seven would be in Genesis chapter 2. The Sabbath rest. Uh, God worked for six days. Hard work, creative, wonderful work. But on the seventh day he rested. You could go to Exodus chapter 23 in the Old Testament. And rather than the seventh day, you read about the seventh year. It's called the Sabbath year. After six years of hard work on the seventh uh, year, you would let the crops uh, go to, uh, to nothing. You would let the land recover. It's a seventh day and it's a seventh year. It's a period of rest and enjoyment. But then, in Leviticus chapter 25, it's not just seventh day, year. There's a Sabbath generation. It's called the year of Jubilee. On, after seven, lots of seven, after 49 years, in the 50th year, you would have the year of Jubilee. It's a wonderful provision by God for his people. So that if you had to sell your land, which was so significant, if you lost your inheritance, if you lost your capital, there was a provision by God for his people for that to come back, for a fresh start. It's called the year of Jubilee. All your debts would be forgiven, your slaves would be freed, your family got the land back that you may have lost in the past 50 years. You got it all back. All debts are paid. The, uh, the bank is happy with you. Well, they're never happy, but you know what I mean. The HMRC, they're never happy either. But every debt is written off. All your credit is now renewed. Everyone gets their slaves back and they go free. And the whole point of this significance of the number seven in the Old Testament is to say, from Matthew's quill, there's a new beginning, verses 1 to 17. And God is doing something new, that there's going to be a new Sabbath rest. It's going to be a year, new year of Jubilee. There's a new beginning. But all those sevens in the Old Testament, they just pointed forward to something. And they pointed forward to someone whose name is Jesus. Spiritual rest that all the other provisions point to. That's what Hebrews chapter 4 says a bit later on that we looked at at the beginning of last year. God in his kindness through his son Jesus will put an end to our strivings, an end to our search for significance by sending a rescuer whose name is Jesus. And he provides for us Sabbath rest, not one day in seven. That's just a pointer to eternal rest of knowing our sins forgiven. That's what the gospel is about, this deep spiritual rest that all these Jewish customs and provisions point to, a day, a year, a jubilee. Every 50 years. The 50-year Jubilee was so radical, some Jews didn't even want to practice it. You can see why. Because they want to keep others under their boot. But it's there in the Bible. I uh, have a PhD in sleep. I don't have a PhD in much. But I have a PhD in sleep. I'm brilliant at it. I'm an expert. All I need is to go horizontal and then it's game over until the Lord returns or Joe wakes me up. Scientists say to you that actually to... Uh, there's just a certain amount of sleep that you need. It's not an amount of time. It's about quality and depth. It's called REM sleep. Great name for a band. It's called REM sleep, rapid eye movement. When you have REM sleep, rapid eye movement sleep, you have a couple of hours, you're dead to the world, and then you're new for the next day. The gospel claims that Jesus gives you, spiritually speaking, REM sleep. An end to your striving, an end to your uncertainty, an end to your pretense. And it's mentioned at the beginning of Matthew's Gospel. It's one of these little nuggets that's in this genealogy that we just want to skip over. But there's gold here. God takes his time breaking into history and he does it to provide rest for us. 
I mean, let's be honest, we look out at the new year and we think, what will we achieve? Who will we become? What mistakes will we make? But we're very shackled to the year that's gone and all the years before. We're very good at wearing masks. We're very good at pretending. And the gospel comes like a nuclear missile and it shatters all that pretense. It's not your works that are going to make God sit up and say you're such a great person. But you can rest in the gospel that says it's not on what you've done, it's what Jesus has achieved. And God is completely satisfied in what his son achieved at the cross. You can rest in Jesus' work, or you can keep on striving and sweating and looking for the approval of other people and looking ultimately for God's approval. Or you can accept the forgiveness of his son, and then you'll know deep spiritual rest. Rest from your hiding. Rest from your striving and efforts to think that God will be pleased with you if you work hard. Rest from your hiding because you know the guilt of last year and even this last week, that you're a rebel. Rest from trying to prove yourself. Rest from trying to show the world and show God how great a person you are, that you're okay. You can let the mask slip when you realize that you're a rebel that needs rescuing. And that's what Jesus Christ is here for. 14, 14, 14 or seven, 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 and then Jesus, the rest of God. And how on earth is Jesus the rest of God? Look at sentence 21. Because God's rest will be provided by Jesus Christ, his son. And what will he do? He will save his people from their sins. That's why there's eternal rest possible. Because of the cross, the birth of this baby, at Christmas, he would die on the first Easter, so to speak. And he would save his people from their sins. No one, no one else can, nothing else can. And all this goodness is in this genealogy that we just want to skip over. God takes his time breaking into history to give us rest by sending his son. No more striving, but enjoyment of God. And you know what? In so doing, he destroys point number three. All of the words, all of the world's distinctions. In so doing, he destroys all of the world's distinctions. I quite like this series. Hands up if you've seen any of them. It's great. Hands up if you saw the Brian Blessed one. Really, really moving. Brian Blessed is a unique cultural institution. He's hilarious. But uh, it's a really moving, interesting one that I saw. I've not seen many others. Who do you think you are as a superb series on the BBC? where they take a, an A-lister or a Z-lister celebrity and they look at their family uh, life. And there's always a tear and there's some, lots of laughter. There's plenty of surprises when they go back a long way quite quickly. They've only got an hour on the program. There's always a skeleton in the closet as uh, the genealogy unfolds a few generations back. It's always moving. I commend it to you. If it's important now, just spend a moment or two thinking what and how important your genealogy was back then in the life of Jesus and even further back. Culturally, it was a huge deal. Your genealogy, where you came from, your pedigree, like a racehorse, it's who you were. It defined who you were. And if you didn't like it, well, you just edited it out. Surely no one would do that. Well, yes, they did. Herod the Great, who we'll meet very soon in the story of Jesus, he didn't like his genealogy. He came from the wrong side of the tracks. Part of his family life were actually from Edom, the Edomites. And they were bad news. So what did he do? He just wiped them out. He just edited his genealogy. He didn't want to be part of uh, that family anymore. He didn't want that skeleton to come out of the closet. So he just got rid of them. Your genealogy was your family. 
They were the people that brought you honor. The genealogy was the people that came before you. They were the bridesmaids. They were the trumpeters. And you're the latest, the last person in the family tree. And therefore, look at some amazement. Martin mentioned it to the kids very helpfully. Look who's in the family tree of King Jesus. Look at how God, look at how he breaks the world's distinctions. There are three groups here. There's the women, there's the Gentiles, there's the lawbreakers. Look at the first group. Look at the women. There are five. Look at verse 3, we meet Tamar. Look at verse 5, we meet Rahab and Ruth. Look at verse 6, we meet Bathsheba. She's not mentioned, but she's the one who was Uriah's wife. And then there's Mary. Five women. Five women in the genealogy of the king of the universe. Now we're in the 21st century, so we think, big deal. Quite right. Why aren't there more? It was a huge deal in the first century. Women had no rights. They were looked over. They were maligned. They were abused. And yet Jesus, through the pen of Matthew, has the audacity to say, I am proud of the women in my family line. And I want them written in perpetuity. I want no one to forget them. The Messiah, the king of the whole universe, when he came, he changed the status of women forever. No longer were they maligned. No longer were they overlooked. No longer were they to be abused in any way. They were to be honored. They were to be treasured. And that begins in chapter 1. There's a pretty shady history to some of these ladies, but I own them by name. And I want them remembered on into the future. I love women like Tamar, like Rahab, like Ruth. I love Uriah's wife Bathsheba, and I love Mary. These women in genealogy are hugely significant because God is not ashamed of them. He wants to honor them and elevate them. But so too are the Gentiles. Look at these Gentiles. Now, this is written to Jewish people, AD 65. Matthew's got his Jewish people in his mind's eye. And yet, and yet there's a lot of Gentiles in this family tree. And that would have been awful for a Jewish person who would cross the road to avoid a Gentile, who would not walk on the safe part of the pavement, who would not, certainly not share a meal with a Gentile. They are filthy dogs. There's no way I'm going to go near them. If they came near me, as a Jewish person, they would make me ritually unclean. I couldn't go to temple anymore. And yet here in the midst of the genealogy, the king of the Jews, the great-great-grandson of David, the king of the universe, Jesus Christ, who do we meet? We meet Rahab. Remember Rahab, this Canaanite? She helped the spies at Jericho. Remember Ruth? Every time Ruth is mentioned in the book of Ruth, it's normally Ruth the Moabitess, lest we forget, since last time. She was born on the wrong side of the Jordan. So let's not forget where she came from. And here's the same point. God loves the women. And God loves Gentiles as much as he does Jews if they have faith in Jesus. <coughs> it's not about your pedigree. It's who you have faith in. It doesn't matter where you were born. It's who you have faith in. Do you know Jesus personally? God loves the women. God loves the Gentiles and God loves the lawbreakers. Where's that? Look at the genealogy again. This is the, the main thing that especially uh, more liberal scholars struggle with significantly. They struggle when they get to verse 3. Do you know who Tamar is? Verse 3. Judah and Tamar had children and the Messiah comes through that union. 
But the issue was, if you look closely, was that's in an incestuous relationship. That family's gone very, very wrong. But Matthew is not ashamed of it. And so he writes it, verse 3, no airbrushing here, no tipex, wasn't invented. Here is Matthew saying, these are people that God knows and owns and loves. Look at Rahab. Rahab was not only the spy helper of Jericho, she was a prostitute. And God puts her right in the genealogy. Remember Uriah's wife, verse 6? That's a, a slam at David. David took her for himself. Murder was committed, great deceit, all because his passions got out of whack. Every one of these women, according to the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 23, is unclean. They were richly unclean. They couldn't worship God. They would be unfit for worship. But they had faith in the God of the Bible that one would come and would save them from their sins. And that's why they're in the genealogy of the king of the universe. So what? Three nuggets. God takes his time breaking into history. He does it to give us rest. And in so doing, he breaks all the world's categories. What a, a train wreck of a family. Talk about dysfunctional, verses 1 to 17. Women in here, they shouldn't be there. Gentiles, they shouldn't be there either. This is a Jewish family. Lawbreakers, they've got no place in God's family. And Matthew says, no, no, no. This is exactly the people that God loves. The application, friends, is this. It does not matter who you are. It does not matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what you will do in the year to come if God spares you. Don't care who you are. Don't care what shame there is in your past. In this family tree, there's incest, there's adultery, there's prostitution, there's pagan worship. That's just the highlights. And Jesus says, these are the people that I love. It's these people that I'm proud of. And I'm not just proud of you. You're going to have an honored place in my family tree. On into the future, people will look at this, and if they read it and not skip over it, they will see that there is rich treasure because it shows the grace of God dripping in every page. Come to me. Everything's wiped out. Come to me at the start of 2019. You can have a fresh start. Come to me if you're a Christian and you've gone a wee bit cool. And remember the profound grace of God that you've not earned, that you don't deserve. Because Hebrews 2 says, he is not ashamed to call us brothers. Yeah, but if you knew what I did this last week, if you knew the mistakes I made last year, it's not about the person next to you. It's certainly not about me. This treasure trove of the first 17 verses of Matthew's Gospel says this, according to Hebrews, he is not ashamed to call us brothers. He's not ashamed of us. He's a bit like a Tom and Jerry, you know, Spike, the dog. That's my boy. That's my girl. That's what the genealogy teaches us. If you believe in Jesus and what he did and who he is and where he stands now in the place of honour, he gives you the place of honour. And he sings over you. He boasts over you. Have you seen them? I know the mistakes I've, they've made, but they've believed in me. And I love them and they're in my family tree. How would you begin your story at the start of 2019? 
The more important question is, how does Matthew begin his story of Jesus? Once upon a time. Nope. In a galaxy far, far away. Nope. He begins by saying, Christ the Savior is born. This is the genealogy of Jesus, who is the Christ. Let's pray.